Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that practices what it preaches, most of the time, on the subject of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have new stories, including two new announcements of new cars, the Yaris Cross and the Peugeot 2008 light SUV. We have interviews with Kate Gillis, the Managing Director from Peugeot, and Brian Smith on tactical urbanism. And we have some feedback on Monaro's, the Nissan Duke, and a bloke who volunteers a lot of time restoring broken traffic lights so that schools can have them for demonstration purposes. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get the program going. Let's start with the news. Toyota has launched an all-new model, the Yaris Cross, its first entry into the light SUV market. This smallest class of SUV has some quirky vehicles, such as the Suzuki Jimny and the Nissan Duke, but with the Mazda CX-3 now dominating sales and new models, such as the VW T-Cross, it is fast becoming a mainstream category. Toyota's Yaris Cross has a unique option, a hybrid model which has a four-wheel drive system but not in the usual way. A third electric motor drives the rear wheels in slippery or off-tarmac conditions when maximum traction is called for. The hybrid all-wheel drive, which costs an extra $3,000, is available in each of the three variants and a long list of safety features is standard across the range. Prices range from $27,000 to $38,000, plus on-road costs. Peugeot has announced their latest 2008 small SUV. After a brief drive, it is clear the vehicle belies its looks. On the outside, it's a stylish, practical SUV. But driving the GT model brings back memories of Peugeot's classic 205 GTI. It feels more sports wagon than sit-up-high SUV. The dashboard graphics make the communication of information easy and clear. The engine sounds purposeful and precise. Kate Gillis is the Managing Director of Peugeot Citroen Australia. If there's a sportier edge to it, it's a very modern, very contemporary vehicle. And the cockpit itself, and we have the iCockpit, which is 3D, as it folds around the driver, you feel very much in control of the vehicle and of the road. So it's a very, it's a very special vehicle. It's not cheap. The base model Allure is $35,000 and the GT is $44,000 plus on-road costs. In the mid-size SUV category, the Ford Escape has been struggling with sales. Now there's an all-new version which has been boosted by achieving a five-star ANCAP safety rating. Rianne Robson from ANCAP said, Prioritising not only the protection of its occupants, the Active Collision Avoidance software system, fitted to all variants of the Ford Escape, saw it achieve a high score of 82% for the protection of vulnerable road users. 
The escape also scored well in ANCAP's three other key areas of assessment, with scores of 92% for adult occupation protection, 89% for child occupant protection, and 77% for safety assist. Close to full points were scored for its ability to detect and avoid or mitigate collisions with pedestrians and cyclists across a range of daytime and nighttime scenarios through its standard fit autonomous emergency braking system. Lane departure warning and assistance systems are now on many new vehicles. But no matter how good the computer is in the car, the quality of the lane markings on the road is the critical element. Ostroads conducted research on how pavement markings affected automatic steering functions and how existing lane marking design and maintenance practices could be improved. Some of the recommendations were that agencies should stop mixing the use of white and yellow markings, as Victoria often does at construction sites improve the quality of dashed lines, which are not picked up as quickly as unbroken lines, improve minimum standards for removing old redundant lines, and road agencies should focus on measurement and include key factors such as the pavement marking materials, vehicle volumes, and particularly heavy vehicle percentages. From a car design perspective, the research found that too often the vehicle's response surprised even professional drivers, which is not desirable. The typical dealership for selling motor cars is an expensive overhead that is hard to sustain. As we have reported recently, Volkswagen has recorded $36 million of online sales this year. But now VW has a retail campaign based on the world's smallest dealership. The miniature dealership stands just 28 centimetres tall. It features an augmented reality experience to allow customers to use their phones and go straight to the model they're interested in and customise the vehicle by choosing a colour scheme and other options. There is even a buy button. Volkswagen points to research that shows the majority of Australians want shopping online to be easy and save them time, and with 80% spending more time than ever pre-searching their purchases online. Their system allows shoppers to try out items digitally to become familiar with the product before they take the plunge. And that has been the news. And we're back again uh, to talk some, well, it's a bit quirky in one way, yet it's an issue that has really struck home in Sydney as well. And joining us to do this is, of course, our great transport planner, Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Now, tell us what's happening in Wellington. So, yes, turning to Wellington, New Zealand now, and many people would be aware of temporary sort of changes in traffic and and uh, the uh, temporary bicycle facilities and the like resulting from the pandemic. So cities that are are trying to encourage or or keep people moving by active modes, walking and cycling, and they've been sort of um, taking away space for cars and creating cycle lanes. In fact, in Sydney, most recently, um, George Street is being basically no more traffic in George Street where the light rail is. And, And I saw them there the other day putting in sort of protected cycle paths um, in Wellington, New Zealand, um, the City Council uh, has put in some temporary cycleways, which uh, it's now revealed could be in place for years. And there's six of them, and they, their intention was to provide more space to enable, 
enable physical distancing um, uh, and, and get people off peak into bikes and stuff. And they removed something like 400 car parking spaces. And uh, a new cycleway that's been put in there would remove another 50 car parking spaces. And so what um, city, some city councillors and some um, shop owners are quite concerned, uh, it, well, I guess the lack of public consultation as they see it, but more that the fact that these temporary measures may be temporary for many years. They're concerned about it. Now, David, um, most cities you find people are, tend not to be um, parking cars outside shops as part of the, the way of basically supporting the economic life of the city. In general, most people in cities um, who are the, the, the uh, customers of many shops walk or get, get there by public transport. And you imagine very, very few people would drive a car into a city, uh, busy city centre, park outside it or expect to be able to park outside a shop and shop there. Uh, I wonder, David, whether this the retailers are more concerned about losing spaces that they themselves may have been parking in than their customers. That happens a lot where if an inspector goes around, the word gets passed around through the local shopping shops and shopping centres and um, comes out with the, the thing that, you know, then we better move them. And certainly there's a lot of research that suggests that very little activity comes to the shops from those parking spaces that are directly out the front. In Sydney, we've got the same problem. This issue's gone through, but most of the complaints are coming from urban areas of people that was in a city, and so the housing, as we talked about last week, no, not only didn't have a small garage, they had no garages at all. And so there are issues about how does my help turn up, you know, like a medical help and so on, and, and particularly for an aged population. It's often called just putting in temporary stuff tactical urbanism yes which to my mind sounds a little bit like terrorism but and i think some people might think it is but the point about it is instead of designing arguing and then spending a squillion dollars you just put temporary stuff up and see how it goes and new zealand's done this a lot it's been known for trying things right and 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 they do consult a lot in that country i've worked there a lot and they consult a heck of a lot and they consulted on these changes, many of them, these pop-up cycleways, and uh, in, in general, people are quite supportive of it. But it's specific businesses that, that seem to be most concerned. And certainly there are issues around, um, uh, you know, access to, to your property or for, to support people. But really, um, you're talking here about, you know, a cafe, for example, which is, is the, uh, the main sort of uh, concern. And I would expect that very little of their revenue would come from car parking spaces uh, outside their cafe. I think you've reported in cases where some guy complained very bitterly that they're taking out car spaces and putting in bikeways or even bike parking, whereas they're exactly the sort of people who on a Saturday and Sunday morning um, after a hard ride will want to sit down and eat you know, good food, but coffees and so on, but to a great extent because they've expended so much energy. And, and certainly cities that have put in cycle paths uh, have the businesses along them have reported big increases in their um, 
in their revenue. And Sydney, look, in Sydney, there's very few places left where you can park a car in Sydney. Most people, 70, 80% of people get to the city by public transport and then walk around, basically. Uh, and that's, that's your customers. And I think, um, look, I, I think uh, anything that helps, the, helps people to move around in a sustainable way is beneficial for a city and it creates an environment where you know it's it's easy to move around it's it's uh, less noise in fact uh, i saw a wonderful set of maps that had, someone had produced about noise levels in the sydney cbd and the quieter streets were the ones obviously without the traffic in them so places like pitt street mall and now george street where the light rail is you know these are more pleasant environments than the places that people are drawn towards rather than you know imagining that someone's driving up to your space and grabbing a coffee and the next person's driving up as well. Really, it doesn't work that way. The one in Sydney's two issues about it. One is that they're using COVID-19 as an excuse, saying we're putting in a temporary, inverted commas, uh, bikeway because you can't use public transport as much because of COVID-19. The other interesting thing that they often do here, and I think to some degree, while I might support the bikeway, how they go about doing it is a bit of a problem. They put up signposting before they put the bikeway in that said 40 kilometres an hour. Now, among other things, it conflicted with some other sides. It had no road markings on it. And the attitude of the government, a colleague wrote to them, was, oh, we're trying to encourage certain behaviour. Well, I'm not sure these people are good at behaviour change because the only way to really encourage it would be for a, a policeman to use the opportunity to make a killing on catching tra traffic out. So I'm not condemning the, the, the project. I'm saying that in many ways we just don't understand behaviour change and what we think might be a way to do it isn't a way to do it at all. In fact, that same council has got a person whose title includes the thing behaviour change, and they're trying to get people onto public transport. It's not to talk about global warming or what have you. It's to give them timetables. It's to show them where the bus stops are. It's to, to do everything that's practical rather than everything that's theoretical and almost mystical in, in the way we often promote alternative forms of transport well people are people struggle to understand change and what what things might be different to the status quo so i'm, I'm quite a fan of of tactical urbanism because i think it it fits with that that concept of the proof of the pudding being in the eating you know you can you can set something up and demonstrate whether it works or not if it doesn't work take it out but in the end if it if it's giving you the outcomes that you want and that um it's not having the impacts that some people are concerned about. People tend to exaggerate how bad things are going to be. The old will all be ruined, said Hanrahan. Um, so if it works, uh, then you've, you've demonstrated it. You've got the evidence rather than, than perhaps trying to convince people of something that they have no experience of. Ah, an experience of it. What a lovely expression. Brian, you've summed it up well. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. And that's Brian Smith, transport planner extraordinaire, who's giving us some reflections on tactical urbanism, where we put in what appears to be temporary things, but gives everything a chance to perhaps refine it a bit, perhaps see if it works, but even if it doesn't, well, then let's take it out. We'll catch him up again next week. This is Overdrive across Australia.
Time for some feedback and last week we did report on our good friend Fred Brain racing his Monaro, his 1969 Monaro in the historic classic car categories at the Bathurst 1000 races. Fortunately Pamela sent the video overseas to some friends and relatives but it left a number of people wondering what the hell a Monaro is but we are taking that up and we're going to start a campaign, Make the Monaro Great Again. You'll hear more of that in the future. Last week we had an interview with Dean Oliver on the unusual design of the Nissan Duke, which is in the smallest SUV class. You asked for a few road test comments. Well, it comes with a 1-litre three-cylinder turbocharged engine delivering 84 kilowatts and 180 newton metres of torque. It does have a 7-speed dual-clutch transmission, which sounds modern, but is, like most dual-clutches, rather fluffy. At times it struggles to decide on the right gear, doesn't engage quickly enough, particularly when manoeuvring for parking, especially if you're on a hill, and it's worse when it's cold, but it works well when you get up ahead of steam. Top of the range has interior with a velour look, with side vents that remind me of a 1950s Chevrolet. There are speakers in the headrest of the front seat. Plenty of safety features, including the new Intelligent Lane Intervention System. Now, I caught up with Rob Fraser, who was a big lad, as we know, and asked his opinion on a few things, starting with the looks. So it was a bit sort of overly try-hard, I think. It really was different. It was, yeah, a bit funky, a bit... This one is, it looks longer too, doesn't look as quite as Noddy Car. Noddy Car's a good description, actually, for the first one. Mm. I think like all of us, as you get a bit older, it gets a bit longer and a bit, a bit plumper. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, is it bulging in the middle? Yeah, very much so. I think they've actually done a good job of keeping that individuality but upgrading the style. Can you fit in it? I actually fit pretty well in it, which is surprising. I'm not sure I'd fit all that well in the back seat, mm. but no, the front seat's fairly comfortable for me. In regard to the Nissan Duke, Dean put together a montage of the concept, then the first production model, and now this new model, and you can see it on our Facebook page, Overdrive City. And also in feedback, after our story on the operation of traffic lights and why a coordinated system is not perfect, Ryan Purdy contacted us to tell us about how he collects broken traffic lights that Vic Roads in Victoria are throwing away. He reconditions them and then sends them out to schools so they can set them up in the playground and other locations and let kids learn how to use them properly. He does this all at his own expense, including volunteering his time. I did ask him a couple of questions. Do your children have very different birthday parties where other kids come round and see all the equipment and that? It must be like entering a show-and-tell situation. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. I think the friends are more gobsmacked to think, what, you know, what's going on here? What's, what's your dad doing? And, like, you know, I've, I've had a few remarks from other parents of um, um, my kids' friends who said, how do you steal them? <laughs> and I said, no, there's no stealing involved, you know. <laughs> it's been phenomenal for some of those children where, you know, they might suffer from it. Uh, I've had a few kids that have come over where they've got Asperger's and a autism and the, the idea of a light, you know, anything that's got that light flickering thing there where they can sort of visually see that and then that the button with the pulsating with the noise. And I think as well as that feeling the button and, and touching it, 
it's been another world to them. You know, there is children out there that would love this in their own backyard too. But, you know, I, and that's why I'm providing this for schools. So I'm providing to make sure that we can, we can have this in their school. It must change the conversation when parents deliver children. My experience is there's somewhat social but not particularly meaningful conversation about the weather and then the parents go off and leave the kids for a while. This must make a almost quantum leap in the level of discussion you have with parents who to bring their kids along. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's exactly right. And that's what my first instances are where they either say, you know, uh, where, where do you steal them from? And it's sort of like, you know, that's the first conversation. I think that's more of sort of a joke in that because it'd be pretty highly impossible to think you could get on a ladder and take one off the road and think you could try and do it yourself. But, I mean, you know, I the conversations go and, and they do discuss about, you know, that early childhood education and they talk about that with their children without road safety. And it's good because it doesn't have to be brought up about, you know, you know, the weather's pretty crappy here today in Melbourne or whatever we're talking about this. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, I've just been on a lovely little drive down to Akuna Bay in New South Wales in Sydney where we were having a look at the new Peugeot 2008 small SUV. Had a had a great chat to Kate Gillis, the General Manager of Peugeot Citroen Australia and Daniel Kahn, their Public Relations and Product Manager. And so what better way to... Uh, uh, enhance that conversation than to chat with them now. Uh, Kate and Daniel, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome, David. Nice to thank be you here. Thank you for having us. Kate, your background, you spent a, a few years, quite a few years in Ireland. Who were you working for there? I spent 10 years in Ireland. Uh, I was working for uh, Waterford Crystal, there, um, the national office which is based uh, in the southeast of Ireland, so where we had our factory and head office. Waterford Crystal is a very elegant product without necessarily going over the top. Would that be a fair reflection? Absolutely. Uh, Waterford Crystal has got a long, very, very long heritage. Um, one of the first glass makers in Europe, actually. A lot of the uh, workers had come over from mainland Europe um, around 17, uh, 1786. Uh, to join the factory there. Um, Waterford is also one of the oldest ports in the world and it had uh, had set up a quite a nice trade with Waterford. So, you know, it, it, it remained in the same place for four or 200 years. So it has this lovely history that evolved. It produces a, a quality product. I, I think they uh, talk about being elegant, finest quality crystal for drinking vessels and objects of beauty. Is that the sort of background that did well for you to move to Persia? Absolutely. I think what where I gravitate to very much so is brands that do have that legacy. Um, they have started and nurtured themselves uh, through time. Objects of beauty, you know, you could you could certainly argue that that Persia has had that in in its number of forms over the last 200 years. And that certainly put, uh, put Waterford in good stead for me to join Peugeot, uh, Peugeot here in Australia. Uh, Peugeot talks about its 210-year history. That obviously goes back before cars. Yes, that's right. That's right. You know, Peugeot got a you know fascinating, fascinating background. Um, it had essentially started by a family who were very forward thinking, who wanted to move their manufacturing into steel, and then evolved from there. But 
Yes, certainly had 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 uh, had some good vision from the very beginning to put us into a position where we are today. 210 years old, uh, the Peugeot brand is, commenced on the 26th of September. You love your history. Yes, I do. Well, of course, they got into the production of things now that really are a part of the, not just elegant, but enjoyable lifestyle, coffee and uh, pepper and salt grinders. Do you ever think that you might be able to give a set of salt and pepper shakers with the Peugeot logo to everyone who buys a new car? Is there a possible link there? <laughs> well, that well, that would be lovely. Uh, look, I, I think, um, you know, the, the history which goes back, and that's, that's sort of, I guess, the, the vibrancy and the colour of the, of the Peugeot brand. Who would have thought, you know, that pe- pepper grinders was where the... Uh, where the company had started. What is nice is if you do have a set of um, pepper and salt grinders from Peugeot that you can start to tell the story of where the brand started and and where the brand is going. So, you know, um, yeah, so you can you can do that. But uh, yeah, probably something to think about in the future of maybe a gift with purchase. That's interesting. You can do that. So if I have someone at a dinner party, it becomes a conversation piece rather than just my car can do naught to 100 in X number of seconds. Yeah, that's exactly right. It invites a really interesting conversation that I'm sure many people don't don't realise the history of the brand. The images uh, you mentioned at the launch, something like the 205, the one of the first little hot hatches one of the first gti's equivalent in the market is that is that an important part of uh, the more recent heritage I, look i think so we we look at the 205 as being a really interesting time not only for the history of the brand uh, in terms of its innovation and its forward thinking but also in terms of it attracting a a new type of customer you could you could, if we went back into the 80s, Peugeot for a brand of, let's say, you know, a, a 25 to 35 year old male probably wouldn't have been the, the vehicle or brand of choice. But once they brought in the 205, uh, and they started to use that vehicle in, you know, all sorts of competition, particularly in rally, it had opened up the market for the brand very nicely. So all of a sudden there was an aspiration for a younger audience or younger demographic to be interested in the in the Peugeot brand. And what we do find now is that people are still in the Peugeot brand and whose first vehicle was, in fact, the 205. So that, that love for the brand has continued on through the last 30 or 40 years. That's for those of us who are getting old. Do you think you've got to replenish that idea of hitting back to the, not hitting, uh, getting back to the young? Is that something that you've really got to work on, do you think? I think that the Peugeot brand has got, as, as we've talked about, has got such a, a, a wild, uh, a wide, I should say, history. And I think that where people are going with their, with their love of brands is that storytelling that comes with brands. If we, if we look at another beautiful uh, French brand in fashion, it's Hermès. Hermès is, is, is bucking a lot of trends at the minute in terms of its growth within the market. It's coming from a younger demographic. Um, and that's because people can see that history that has come from the brand and that puts it in good stead moving forward. The same thing is for, for Peugeot as well. As we move into a new dawn around electrification, Peugeot was definitely one, one of those brands at the forefront of electrification, of technology, uh, of style, and all of that gets wrapped up uh, in terms, particularly in terms of our new product and what's coming through through our pipeline. 
it, it opens up then the opportunity for the brand to have a different aspect for a younger demographic, knowing that a lot of foundation of the brand has actually come from its long, you know, long history. So that long history is putting us in good stead for the future conversations that we can have with, you know, with, with new customers. How much of a turnaround has there been with COVID, with environment and that, that changes the very nature of the, the car industry of where you're heading? You mentioned electric and so on. Are these huge factors now in redefining how you approach the market? Yes, there is definitely different ways which we uh, which we need to approach the market. But it's also fair to say that we we're also still in the middle of what COVID and the impact of COVID is going to is going to have on us. You know, we saw in in New South Wales we had a shutdown from May to or March to May. After May, uh, things started to open, and we saw, for instance, with regards to vehicle sales, they bounced back quite uh, quite well. Kate, that's been lovely. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you for having us. And that was Kate Gillis, who is the Managing Director of Peugeot Citroen Australia, telling about her background and the passion and emotion that goes into selling a vehicle in our market. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Kate Gillis, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.